This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The information presented on this program is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult an appropriate professional for guidance about your concerns. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPP Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome back Emma Rhodes, co-founder and director of conservation and scientific research at the Banding Coalition of the Americas. She's truly dedicated to avian research and outreach. As a master bird bander, she'll talk with us today about the Purple Martin Project and how regular citizens can participate in bird banding activities. Also, Libby and Dr. Major are here ready to answer pet and creature questions. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start off with you. Uh, a little bird told me that uh, last Saturday was your husband Paul's birthday and you guys went on a mountain <laughs> climb. Tell us about that. That sounds like fun. Well, well, we went to one of our favorite places, Mary's Peak, and uh, thought we'd better climb a little bit. Not Nothing terribly drastic, no ropes involved or any of that kind of stuff. But uh, it was a great walk and a, a beautiful view. We could, uh, we could see Mount Hood peeking over the clouds in the distance with the snow top and saw a couple of other of the Cascade Mountains. But we were in the coastal range having fun and, um, let's see, eating crabs again yesterday. Lots of beautiful things going over here. And um, around, around our house in Corvallis, um, Anna's hummingbirds and uh, Rufus hummingbirds, lots of both chattering. And I expect they're getting ready to go south as um, I know the, uh, the hummingbirds in Mississippi. And, oh, my head got in Mississippi this morning. As soon as I woke up, I started reading about um, uh, George Phillips and Nicole Smith made a, a, a great discovery of a mosasaur skeleton. That's um, They think it's just almost all there and uh, a, a pretty cool thing that uh, George didn't even go hunting that day. He was just showing Nicole one of his sights and happened on it. So we'll have to have them talk about that later. So we've been watching acorn um, uh, woodpeckers, which are really cool little things, and uh, looking for snakes. Uh, we found garter snakes and gopher snakes. Uh, we've got several kinds of garter snakes here. Um, a western terrestrial garden snake, garter snake, um, un, uh, northwestern garter snakes, and common garter snakes. Uh, haven't found any venomous snakes, which, of course, Norman would like to see with me. Uh, the only thing we ha would have a chance of finding would be a, a, a western rattlesnake, but we haven't found that yet, so we're still looking. And uh, haven't seen any purple martins yet, although I did enough reading to find out that uh, 
there are a couple of populations north of us here. They're um, a little bit more rare, I think, here than in the east. And the western ones, they thought evidently were not as habituated to um, uh, human-made uh, nesting sites, but now they do seem to be more. And um, Oregon State has done research about four miles north of us in um, some woods. They've got um, various kinds of nesting um, sites available to um, the birds and have been testing out and they've got a couple of good strong colonies there and um, really have done a good bit of research on the animals out here so I'm anxious to hear um, everything that you've got to say about about what's been going on with Purple Martins. So I believe that uh, Jabba has a squirrel question. Oh. Yeah, this morning, um, just, I mean, I was doing our normal family routine. And, of course, I saw some beautiful uh, cardinals that really, I guess, kind of got my attention to stop and pause for a little bit. And there were two cardinals. I don't know if it's main season. They were chirping at each other and jumping around from the tree to the top of the house. But then I saw a squirrel just literally like right uh, in front of my feet. Um, that's what really I was able to get a good look, walk across, and it had something in its mouth. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was like uh, another mammal. <laughs> uh-huh. and, but then I looked up um, on the computer, and it was a baby. I, I, that's how the mamas or the daddies carried the babies around, and I didn't know yeah. if it was – It's is it uh, – nesting season for the squirrels is it baby baby season for the squirrels or something because i had never seen that before yeah yeah they should probably have their babies now and uh if a you know famously what what harasses squirrels a lot are um house cats and if a if a cat is um prowling too close to where she's got her babies she may decide to move them all and you know that's something i need to read about i don't know if the males get in on that and help move the babies or not but the mommies will do a lot of work and sometimes the babies are pretty big looks like a lot of work you know down a tree and across a yard and up another tree if um she feels threatened in the place where she's got them so that's probably what was happening she was moving that baby somewhere because she went, we have a big tree in the backyard, and I assume that's where it came from. And then we have another tree in the front yard, and it went across my feet, and I really couldn't see it after that. After I saw it go up the tree trunk, so that was that was uh, a really adventurous this morning. Okay, yeah, you might see her do it again if she's because uh, chances are she's got more than one baby out there. Well, we will keep a lookout. Okay. As usual, Dr. Troy Major joins us from his clinic in Jackson. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Major. Got an email here for you about a a cat question, and it says, My cat's been dealing with compulsive grooming and hot spots for two years. She's an eight-year-old, short-haired tabby, a bit overweight. My vet and I have tried everything, including steroids, creams, and antibiotics. The hot spots have grown in numbers overnight and weak blood and plasma. What should I clean the spots with, and is there anything I can do to speed healing? Are vitamin E capsules safe? Also, I put a cone on her and plan to keep it on her until the sores heal. Is there anything I need to do for her baths, wiping, etc., while she's wearing the cone? Uh, thanks ever so much for the help. So uh, let's start off with uh, trying to clean the hot spots. What, what would your advice be there? You know, there's several things that you could use to that would be very, very mild. You don't want to use anything too uh, 
irritating. Uh, there's a uh, cleaning wound care thing called Vetresin, uh, which you can obtain from, you know, your vet, I would think. That would help to, to, to clean this. But, you know, this is a long-standing thing. She said two years, I believe. Yes. And has been going on. So there may be uh, some deep-lying uh, issues here. There may need to be some biopsies done. I just don't know exactly, and I'm sure the vet has given her good advice. The other thing would be, uh, think potentially of something uh, that would change her attitude. Uh, the generic Prozac is used in some cases with success, so uh, I might discuss that with your veterinarian. Uh, the cone should help. But the cats, you know, traditionally is not real happy with a cone. I wouldn't be either if I was a cat. So uh, those are all possibilities. But it sounds like with something going on this long that there may be a strong underlying cause. Uh, A lot of times the eosinophilic complex uh, can cause this uh, excessive grooming uh, and can cause some pretty severe uh, plaques or sores. So it sounds like this cat is is uh, probably very uncomfortable, and I would discuss something like the generic Prozac and see if that might help. Uh, so a, more of a general question, you know, we've seen both uh, dogs and cats that have those cones on when they sometimes come back from a trip from the vet. Is there anything that uh, pet owners can do to help out in terms of grooming, extra grooming, uh, that sort of thing? I, she asked about a cat in a bath. That doesn't sound like a good idea there, but uh, is there anything we can do while those pets have to have the cone on? You know, certainly uh, you can bathe a cat. Uh, do it at your own risk, usually, because uh, they're not real happy with it. But there are ways to do it. One of the things that I've done when I bathe a cat is use a kitchen sink, usually, or a double sink, and actually put a towel uh, on the bottom of the sink when you have water in it, so it'll just give the cat a little surface to grasp rather than that slick, uh, you know, uh, stainless steel or whatever the sink is made of. Um, yes, you can bathe a cat, and there's some soothing type uh, uh, shampoos such as uh, oatmeal and aloe, uh, things like that, that might help some. I, I really feel like that baths in a cat like this probably did not accomplish a whole lot. That's oh. my opinion. Okay. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Joining us on the show this morning is our guest, co-founder of the Banding Coalition of the Americas and director of conservation and scientific research, Emma Rhodes. Emma, thanks for joining us again. You were with us in January of last year talking about hummingbirds, and you have a story about a rufous hummingbird that uh, you wanted to band right outside of Jackson. If you would tell us about that. Yes. uh, Thanks so much for having me again. Excited to be here. So um, we right now have, have um, received a few reports of Rufus hummingbirds, which is a Western U.S., uh, typically f- uh, found in the Western U.S., um, but we have been having some reports of spot of uh, sightings of them in the Southeastern U.S., including one um, that was spotted in Jackson, Um, a few days ago. Unfortunately, the bird disappeared before I could band it, Um, but uh, you should definitely keep an eye out and look at your feeders. If you don't already have a feeder up, it's a good time to put a feeder up and you never know uh, what might pass through during migration. Uh, What does a rufous hummingbird look like? 
So unlike the ruby-throated hummingbird, the rufous hummingbird has a lot of rufous um, on the underside of the body as well as on the tail. Um, so it's not going to be that green back contrasting with white like a ruby-throated throat, uh, ruby hummingbird. You're going to see a lot more rufous undertones. And then also the males have this really nice uh, coppery, a shiny gorget as opposed to the red gorget on a ruby-throated hummingbird. So, so what, what does rufous mean? Is it a, a color? Yeah, I think uh, the name uh, originated just from the color rufous. Um, and rufous is really a, it's a sort of like a, in between a dark brown and orange color. Um, so I believe that is where the name came from. Um, is it's specifically referring to the color of the bird because it has a lot of those those rufous um, overtones um, again. Some people call it a rusty color. It's yeah, rusty. So uh, tell us uh, how you first got interested in birds. Is this something that uh, you've been kind of uh, a passion for you since, since an early age? Yeah, so I started birding um, probably when I was seven years old, somewhere around that time. I was just interested in my backyard birds. Uh, no one introduced me to birding. I just was naturally drawn to, to birds and attracted to them. And I wanted to understand what was going on outside and, and how these birds live. And so from there, um, I was able to join some local uh, birders in lower Alabama uh, birding, and I, I became involved with the Alabama Coastal Bird Fest, and then eventually um, I was introduced to bird banding um, when I was 12, and I started, uh, two years after that, I was, um, I started volunteering at a local bird banding station in Fort Morgan, Alabama, and I've been doing um, bird banding research ever since. We're going to talk about banding in a minute, but uh, first, if someone, a parent or, you know, uh, uncle, aunt, uh, someone who has a, a younger person in their care and knows them and they have see, sense an interest in, in birds and that sort of thing, are some suggestions or tips you might give to help encourage younger folks uh, in, in birding? Yeah, there's definitely a lot more opportunities that are, uh, that, um, are there for younger birders now than when I was um, a young birder. And thankfully, that is growing. So there's lots of local um, Audubon chapters and birder groups that now even have young birders clubs. Um, so there's a great um, resource on Cornell website where they list um, all the Young Birders Clubs in the U.S., so you could check that out and see if there's one in your area. Um, and then I would recommend looking and seeing what birding clubs exist in your area and seeing what programs they have, because a lot of them will have now youth programs, uh, you know, specifically focused on trying to get young birders um, more involved and give them opportunities to get out there and bird with other people. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Emma Rhodes, and throughout the hour, we're going to be talking about her work with Purple Martins and also banding birds. So if you have questions along those lines, you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So let's talk about banding, Emma. What, what exactly is it? What are you putting on the bird's, I guess, leg, I guess? 
So bird banding is a, a federally permitted process where we affix a lightweight aluminum band to the leg of the bird. The bird has a nine-digit unique number combination. It's akin to a social security number for us. Um, and um, it is uh, it, it can actually last um, the full life of that bird. So that, that band will last um, for that bird's entire life. And it's a way that we can um, assess bird population, see where birds move, um, how they're doing, how long they live. A lot of our longevity records come from banding where a bird that was banded uh, was recaptured or uh, found later on. And, and we were able to get that record of how long that bird uh, roughly lived. And so it's a way for us to monitor populations um, in various uh, different capacities. So is there like a central database with all the bird, birds that have been banded? So if you see one, you could p look up somewhere to get information about where the bird has been and that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah, so the people who manage that and who issue uh, bird banders their permits is the Bird Banding Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. They do have a website that you can look up to report a ban. So if you find, like sometimes people will find a, a you know, a dead bird on the ground with a ban, definitely encourage you to go on and report that ban because yes, all our data goes to that centralized database and they will um, send you that information of where that bird was banded and thank you for contributing to um, the knowledge uh, of uh, birds in general. So yeah, that would, is the central uh, data clearinghouse for all the banding data in North America. So we talked about uh, banding hummingbirds, and as everyone knows, they're very, very small birds. So tell us what it's like to train and to learn how to put these little bands on the birds. So hummingbird banding is even more specialized than band, uh, like pastorin or songbird banding. Um, it requires a lot more training. So initially, you, you typically start out with learning about songbirds and how to band songbirds before you move to hummingbirds. So I didn't, um, I did not obtain my hummingbird permit um, until I had uh, roughly 10, 11 years of experience. So it can take quite a long time to obtain that permit and you have to go through evaluation to make sure that you can, you know, safely um, handle the bird because obviously the bird's safety is number one priority. Um, it is really quite amazing, although now I will say it is second nature. Like I, I will go to people's houses and ban their winter hummingbirds. And, you know, sometimes they're like, um, they're amazed. You know, how are you not nervous? And, you know, I say, well, I have done this, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 times at this point plus. So, um, yeah, it does become second nature to me. But I still am amazed sometimes by um, uh, these little birds. And they're quite ferocious and um, really hardy birds. You know, people think of hummingbirds as maybe dainty and delicate, and I, I see them in, in an entirely different light. And I, I really think that they would be quite uh, terrifying if they were any larger than they actually are. <laughs> so, so we're lucky they're so small. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so in, in general, what are some of the safeguards that you would do when banding a bird, to keeping the bird safety in mind? The number one thing is, you know, you have um, your bander in charge typically, and they're the ones responsible for making sure that the birds are being, um, you know, their safety is being kept in mind. 
And um, it really depends on the project, but, you know, in a lot of cases, like at our uh, public banding event that happens in Fort Morgan, Alabama in the fall, we have a lot of um, what's called mist nets set, uh, set out in the habitat. And one of the things about them is we're always keeping up with the weather. Um, you know, is it too hot? Is it too cold? Because if it is too hot or cold, we'll close nets down. If, um, you know, we all of a sudden have a fallout of birds where we have a lot of birds, um, you know, we'll close nets just to make sure that we're processing birds quickly because we don't want to hold them um, too long, obviously. Um, we're trying to obtain the data in a, safely, uh, a safe manner. Um, so those are things that you have to consider is uh, make sure that people are properly trained um, and that include and that's the whole process. So you got to be trained on um, how to extract birds out of nets from release. So we want to make sure that everyone has the proper tra training and supervision and that uh, we're keeping up with um how the birds are doing and monitoring. And as uh, a, an avian biologist, I know what to look for. Um, if let's say a bird is sickly, we'll just release it immediately. No matter what stage that bird is in the process of being banded, we'll just go ahead and release that bird. So we're also gonna talk about the work that you do with purple martins. And if you would uh, describe what a purple martin looks like. Um, yeah, so purple martins, have this sheer dark blue color um, all over their their body. Uh, they have a, a black bill, wide bill, and um, dark eyes. And then when they open their wings, um, they're actually a lot of their wing feathers are um, their wing feathers are black. Um, and so, but they have this really pretty sheerness about them. And I believe that's probably where they got the name Purple Martin, even though they're not actually purple. Um, but they do uh, look really beautiful, especially in the light, uh, because then you see that that dark bluish uh, shades coming out um, as the feathers, are, uh, the light hits the feathers. So, Emma, you describe what a purple martin looks like for us. Uh, tell us about the Southeastern Purple Martin Project. Yeah, so the Southeastern Purple Martin Project is a, a project started by... Um, the nonprofit organization um, that I co-founded. And it, it the goal of the project is to add to the collective knowledge of the life history of the Eastern um, Purple Martin, and mainly trying to understand what their migratory pathway, um, their migratory pathways are. And we currently have study sites in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. So our focus is in the southeastern states where um, they have historically been understudied. Um, is a purple martin a bird that folks could attract to their home? Yeah, it is. Um, now, uh, purple martins do have some requirements in that they're aerial insectivores. So um, they like to have um, open canopy. So um, they don't really like dense wooded areas, but if you have some open property somewhere, some people will find uh, and obtain permission elsewhere off of their property to put up uh, Purple Martin houses um, to attract the birds. So you can definitely attract them by putting up artificial houses as well as um, you can use decoys to, uh, to attract uh, new recruits um, and in order to uh, start um, having nesting purple martins. 
So um, anytime I hear something about uh, birds eating mosquitoes, I get excited. So is the hype about uh, Purple Martins eating mosquitoes true? Unfortunately not. Um, their primary, their diet does not primarily consist of mosquitoes. But it, uh, the good news is that it does consist of flying insects overall. Uh, things like uh, beetles, grasshoppers, flies, dragonflies, uh, moths, wasps. Um, so unfortunately, no, their uh, mosquitoes aren't what's primarily in their diet. Um, but uh, they definitely, there's other benefits to having purple martins for sure. So when we talk about uh, creatures on the show a lot and talk about if they might be in distress or decline, a lot of times uh, lack of habitat is one of the causes. Is that the case with purple martins as well? Yes, um, um, yes and no. So the, the main threats to the eastern race of purple martins is habitat loss overall, but more specifically, um, it's not having nesting sites, so um, not having natural cavities. And that's because those natural cavities have been taken over by invasive introduced species, um, the European starling and house sparrows, which also will predate on the young of purple martins and, and will, um, will destroy their nests. And so because of that, they rely almost entirely on artificial houses at this point because of those um, invasive species. Is there anything that we can do about that? I mean, that sounds like something that's kind of like nature taking its course almost. Well, so um, a little bit of history about European starling and house sparrows. So they were introduced to the U.S. in the 1800s. Um, and the thing is with them is they have, there's nothing that is naturally keeping the population at bay. Um, so they don't have a lot of competitors. They don't have a lot of um, predators. And um, additionally, in this, um, in their non-native habitat, they are highly adaptive, which um, does speak to the species. But for instance, you might see a house sparrow and a European starling eating french fries at the parking lot of local McDonald's. Um, and so unfortunately, um, because they do so well with human development, um, they, um, uh, the native species can't really compete. Um, and so um, I would definitely argue that it's, it's not nature, it's us. We introduce that species and as a fact, um, the purple martin is in decline because, again, nothing is keeping those populations at bay. Like, um, they're not a problem in their natural habitats, but they're a problem here because um, they have adapted to a human so well um, that there's nothing really um, um, helping maintain those populations from taking over the natural cavities of our um, native cavity nesters. And so to help, um, there really it's management of the artificial houses that people have been implementing to deter those species from taking over the purple martin colonies. And that's really the best thing you could do is if you have cavity nesters um, and you have houses, whether or not they're bluebird houses or purple martin houses, um, Deterring away those non-native species is, is definitely key to helping the birds. So uh, what is a geolocator and how does it help in the Purple Martin study? 
So geolocators are a lightweight tracking device that stores daylight information on a bird, and that daylight information can be used and analyzed as um, a proxy for location, so latitude and longitude. Um, and by and we're actually deploying these devices on Purple Martins as a part of our um, pro as part of our project in order to understand how these birds get to South America, where they overwinter, and one of these critical stopover sites that they use so we can focus on conservation at those sites and conserving those habitats. So we deploy the unit and we do have to retrieve the unit uh, the following year in order to collect um, the data. But that's why we're implementing them is we want to elucidate the mysteries about their annual, their full annual cycle. And so is this something that's attached to the bird like the band? Um, so it's a little bit different. They wear it like a backpack. It's essentially like a, a backpack harness uh, made of very thin Teflon string. Um, and it goes around their legs. And once it's on the bird, it's really hard to see. Again, it's very lightweight because we don't want it to negatively impact um, the bird at all. And it's just exposed enough on the back of the bird to where it receives that um, daylight information. If we don't retrieve that unit, that unit isn't made to stay on that, that bird for um, indefinitely. So eventually we'll just fall off if we're unable to retrieve it. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with our guest, Emma Rhodes, and we've been talking about her work with uh, Purple Martins and also uh, bird banding. So, Emma, we mentioned you're the co-founder of the Banding Coalition of the Americas. If you would, give us the reasons behind starting the organization. So, I started this organization with Kyle Shepard um, because we both are extremely passionate about understanding the natural histories of our native species and helping migratory birds. We're also really passionate about outreach. So we operate a public bird banding station in the fall um, in Fort Morgan, Alabama. Um, and it's a open to the public event. Um, and it enables people to see what researchers are doing and why. And it helps connect birds um, uh, to people. And, um, and essentially, you know, we believe that um, if you don't know why you should care, why why do you why would you care about the conservation of species? So our goal is to help connect the dots of why um, conservation is important, and uh, doing that by providing these public banning opportunities for people to learn more about our native species. And you uh, said you do it in the fall. Do you have a date for the the public banning event this year? Yes, it's going to be held uh, from September 30th through October 7th, um, and the hours are roughly 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, we don't charge um, for the event, but the it is on um, a historic commission property at Fort Morgan, Alabama, so you do have to pay an entrance fee. Um, but, um, yeah, we will be banding throughout that period and would love to, to see people there. We do have a lot of listeners in South Alabama, so and it's not that far even for us in Mississippi to go, so that sounds like that would be a fun uh, day trip or something. So uh, if a bird watcher is out and about and sees a banded bird, is there anything they should or could do? So um, a lot of the standard federal bands are not what we call filled readable bands. 
because they have the that unique nine digit sequence and it's very hard to see them. Um, however, um, there are filled readable bands like color bands, which um, people can take photos of and use binoculars to read the band and they can report. So this is why we are color banding the Purple Martins. Uh, we banded over, color banded over 600 birds this past summer. Um, and they're all, they are filled readable. So they're an alphanumeric. So they have a letter and um, three digits on it. And if you were to see it, um, a Purple Martin with a color band, you know, please contact us. Um, and in terms of color bands in general, um, you know, you're welcome to reach out to us and we'll try to get you to the right person. You can also reach out to the banding lab as they know a lot about what studies are going on uh, currently so they can help point you to the right direction with color bands. Uh, but typically when someone reports an actual federal band that's not a researcher, they probably found the, you know, the bird deceased on the ground somewhere. And that's how they were able to get the nine digits off that aluminum band. Uh, but even if you see a deceased bird, that's useful information that that you should probably go ahead and report it. Yes, definitely report it on the bird banding lab. They also will tell you that, well, they'll also ask that you specify how you found it. So you would tell them that that bird was deceased. And then you would give them any information that you have on where you found it, um, what date you found it, et cetera. And that, yeah, that's very important for researchers to um, obtain because in a lot of cases, that's how we get our longevity records. So there was um, the current record holder. I think it's just still the current record holder for the um, longest living um, bald eagle. Was, it happened that way. So someone found a bald eagle on the side of the road that was banded. And we found out that it was 30 plus years old. Um, so how do you determine which birds to ban? Is it any birds or does it generally ones that might be threatened or endangered or maybe a specific reason a researcher is trying to track one? So typically you have a specific question in mind. Um, you are trying, it's project specific. So with the Purple Martins, we have our specific questions um, at our migration stations. We're trying to capture what's happening in migration throughout the year. So we're trying to understand long term, what are the pop population fluctuations and patterns we see and what species are occurring when um, during migration. So there's a whole different variety of, of different ways you can use banding. Some people use it to monitor breeding populations. Um, and so it really just depends on, you know, what question you have. And yes, there's definitely um, examples of banding being used on endangered and threatened species in order to figure out how the population is doing from year to year. Before our next break, we've got a caller on the line. It's our friend Rachel who calls in from Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. You're on the air with us. Good morning. So I'm wondering, uh, is it a good thing to feed, for me to feed my birds all year long, or, uh, or am I making them uh, dependent on the food that I put out for them. Emma, any thoughts on that? Be, should yeah, they be so, foraging? So um, from studies, we know um, that um, birds are not dependent on feeders. That's why we can feed wild birds, um, because essentially if you took them down, um, you, know, to our, you know, from the current research, 
they don't decline directly from you taking the feeder down. Because I get this question also a lot on hummingbird feeders. Should I take a hummingbird feeder down because am I, you know, causing that bird to stay? And the answer is no. So um, I would definitely say you can keep them out year round, that they're not going to be dependent. You know, they have other, uh, they have other um, access to foraging sites and they have um, other resources that if you were to remove your feeders or if you couldn't feed them for a week or, you know, if you had to stop um, abruptly, that they would be fine. Um, they're not going to become uh, solely reliant on those uh, food resources. All right, Rachel, good you question. Know, I, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say I've, I've read before that because of the way nectar comes in season for hummingbirds, they're used to having one main source maybe for two or three days, and then those flowers, you know, die or go out of season. So they have, they're used to having to move around for a site. So hopefully your hummingbird feeder is just one of the sites they hit looking for food. And they're very adapted to know they may have to move for food. Is that, that's kind of how it's been explained to me in the past. A lesson that humans can take from uh, hummingbirds is work a little bit harder for your food and uh, <laughs> maybe we won't be so flabby. Yeah. <laughs> if you missed any of today's show, you can try to listen to the repeat on Saturday or subscribe to the podcast using your podcasting app or you can download the MPB Public Media app. Got another caller on the line. This time we'll say good morning to Kay from uh, Northeast Mississippi. Kay, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Oh, thanks. Emma, could you repeat your contact information should we encounter one of these birds that has been tagged and maybe deceased that you know we found deceased or something most definitely so we are uh, you can find um, banning coalition if you type in banning coalition on facebook and instagram we also have a website where you can find my email address and that is banningcoalition.org again that's banningcoalition.org so um, you can look us up there, and um, it's pretty straightforward how to, um, you know, get my email from that and send me an email. Definitely want to hear from you. All right. Thanks so much. You're well, welcome. Thanks for the call, Kay. Uh, so, Emma, we've talked about the Purple Martin Project, and I think we mentioned that you also research uh, with winter hummingbirds. Uh, is that uh, project going to start up again soon? Yes, so um, officially it won't start until um, around November 15th, um, but from November 15th through March 1st, if you have a winter hummingbird, um, we definitely want to know about it. And if you're outside of the area in which I go to ban, I will uh, get you in contact with a bander in your area. So we definitely want to hear from you. Um, and like I was, we were talking about before, if you ever have a Western hummingbird species or a species other than ruby-throated hummingbirds, we definitely want to know because we do record that information year-round um, and want to document um, other species, rare species of hummingbirds that show up in the southeast. So are there other birds uh, on your radar that you are currently or would like to study? Hmm. Well, um, I have a lot of irons in the fire right now, so there's always more uh, projects that I would like to to do. Um, you know, currently I have projects going on for my, my PhD um, on migratory birds, and I have the projects um, with BCA. Um, so I will definitely say um, that pretty much fills up my time. But yes, there there's definitely other birds that I would. Um, 
always looking to the future to to study. Um, you know, we're hoping to Banning Coalition is, is hoping to expand to some raptor research, so birds of prey um, eventually. And so, yeah, definitely always thinking about um, how we can just better increase the knowledge of birds uh, and ask questions that we don't know and, and figure out um, more about the species. So when you when you do one of these studies, I imagine it's it's a multi-year affair. If you would, maybe kind of give us a timeline of how a project like this would evolve. Well, we can use the Purple Martin project as an example. So um, the Purple Martin project is, is pretty unique in that what made us interested was we actually had some Purple Martin landlords in Alabama who reached out to us and asked if we'd be interested in, in banding their birds to understand their movements. And we started doing some research and we figured out that um, these areas that we're studying these birds, we really don't understand you know, where they go, uh, specifically how they migrate. And so that really got us interested. So then um, from there, we said, well, what, what are our questions, right? Like, what do we want to figure out? And our main questions were, you know, how, how are they doing? Are they stable? Is the population stable? And if in, they are in decline, which evidence, current evidence shows that they are, why are they in decline? And two, what are the migratory pathways um, of these birds so we can better conserve those habitats? Um, and so from there, we sort of figure out, well, how many years do we need to try to ask this question? So the Purple Martin question is, uh, the Purple Martin project is currently a three-year project. You know, we're hoping that with um, some additional banders, we can continue the, at least the color banding efforts indefinitely because the more we ban birds, the higher rate of um, getting those longevity records later on, as well as um, understanding their dispersal. Um, I think you, we had mentioned earlier that uh, these are birds that you can attract to your uh, local, you know, your yards, that sort of thing with these houses. And uh, do you have any tips on if someone wanted to try to attract purple martins, how would they go about doing that? So I would check out um, a website called purplemartinconservation.org uh, um, because they have some really great startup tips on um, how to begin attracting purple martins, what you need, as well as um, houses you can buy, recommendation on, on best houses and gourds you can purchase to start them up. Um, and really, I would say, you know, my my um, suggestion would be start small, um, you know, because there's a lot that goes into managing Purple Martins, like we were talking about earlier, those invasive species, um, and, and there's other things to consider as well. Um, uh, predator guards, in a lot of cases, you do need to implement some sort of predator guard on the pole of your Purple Martin houses because um, you can't you can have a snake climb up those poles absolutely will happen raccoons uh, you know feral cats so you want to prevent that um, but yeah I would check out that website purplemartinconservation.org and they have some great brochures on on uh, and links on how to get started so one final thing I forgot to ask about earlier how how big are purple martins uh, uh, <laughs> I mean now I'm blanking um, <laughs> So they're probably roughly um, mockingbird size, uh, northern mockingbird size. Um, um, yeah, and so that's roughly, I like blanked on the actual metric number. I don't know why, but 
Yeah, they're about mocking northern mockingbird size. And if you want to learn more about the Banding Coalition of the Americas, again, I think the uh, web address or is bandingcoalition.org. Yes. All right. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Great show this morning. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Charles Arnold. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Emma Rhodes, I'm Kevin Farrell. And we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.